His name is Alexis Borsier. You made it a lot worse. <laughs> Since he was a child, he's been raised to consider pop culture as a fine art to be studied, dissected, analyzed, and debated. My name is Ben Spiro. I am the proud owner of a giant inflatable poop emoji. Well, maybe not a proud owner. <laughs> Together we're proud to present... Hyper Strong Miracle Treasure. Welcome to Hyper Strong Miracle Treasure, the show where two friends take a deep dive into the pop culture grab bag and hurl random implements of entertainment at one another with reckless abandon. Barcier, uh, how you holding up? I'm just fine. Oh, okay. Well, pal, it feels like just yesterday we were trying to ignore Christopher Lloyd's Klingon blackface by focusing on his Muppet dog in Star Trek III The Search for Spock. He did have a Muppet dog. He was not in blackface. <laughs> arguable. Nope, not arguable. <laughs> it's like whether or not Idaho is a state. It may be unfortunate... And it may be confusing, given what we know about everything else, but ultimately it is a state. <laughs> but we've crossed that particular Rubicon, and now we're barreling into the back half of our Run the Series battle for Star Trek versus Hellraiser. Next week, we'll be discussing my pick, the Alan Smithy-directed historical epic-slash-demon-in-space debacle that is Hellraiser Bloodline. But this week, it's Borsier's turn to hit me with Star Trek IV, and, and he's found the one thing that is almost certain to turn me against an awesome 80s movie, which is, of course, sloppy time travel. Yes, we're about to discuss what Star Trek fans affectionately acknowledge as the one with the whales. A double dumbass on you, my friend, as I ask. Borsier, what did you just make me watch? It is the one with the whales. <laughs> What's its qualities? Well, it has whales. I made you watch 1986's Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. There was a talk that the subtitle should be Whales. <laughs> Which is funny, because now it kind of is. <laughs> like, like for reals? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Star Trek IV, whales. It is the highest earning of the original Star Trek movies. <laughs> and by most regular people considered to be the most beloved, it's fun. But much like a bottle episode right before your big finale, there are... Money-saving tips aplenty for people wanting to make a space opera in Star Trek IV. This is clearly the most cost-effective of the Star Trek films. And it's not because it looks bad. It looks fine. It's just this, the easiest way to have a relatively cheap space opera is not setting it in space. Don't set it in space. And no aliens. Bring an invisible <laughs> ship. Spock's ears, they're covered the entire time. We're not even putting them in makeup. We're just we're just sending them out. But I remember one of the uh one one of the most interesting notes about this movie is that the director, Leonard Nimoy, had a lot of debates about how they were supposed to get Star Trek people onto the streets of San Francisco. A lot of conversations with costuming. And he went to San Francisco <laughs> to do scouting. And looked around and just went, ah, oh, they'll just wear what they're wearing. <laughs> no, the streets of San Francisco in 1986, yeah, that... Yeah, it's fine. I don't know. No. <laughs> <laughs> no one's gonna call the cops on them. It's not Iowa. Uh, Scotty looks a little rough, but other than that, 
you know, it, it's just little things. No one fires a phaser in this movie. Yeah, actually, it's famous for that. They only use a weapon a couple of times. Chekhov tries to use his broken phaser, uh, but no, it is famously, there's no no ray guns in this movie. <laughs> nope. Why? That, that's an optical effect we do not need to pay for. That is expensive. <laughs> actually, the only one I remember, it's really weird, the only shot I remembered Nimoy begging for is the the close-up of the bird of prey at the very end of the movie. And that was his only over-budget request. When they catch the whaling ship, there's one close-up of the front of the bird of prey, and that was an after-wrap request. We need this shot. (laughs) I saved you so much money. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Like, I sent you an invisible spaceship in San Francisco. Can I please have just one, (laughs) one shot of it? Above Alaska or Norway. It's unclear. (laughs) When last we left Leonard Nimoy, he had been asked to direct Star Trek III, which, while not a good film, I don't think, he can't really be blamed for any of that. It's not bad. (laughs) Except there is something he can be blamed for, and that's that he is actively bad at directing sci-fi action. He doesn't have an eye for it just geographically in the space that he's recording. Again, this is the auteur behind Three Men and a Baby. Uh-huh. Funny about love. That 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 one movie where a prepubescent Amish Joseph Gordon-Levitt is forced to marry an adult Patricia Arquette. Yes, I get uh, he's got he's got a zone that he works in and and it's screwball comedy. Yeah, Leonard Nimoy would clearly like to be making Buzzley Berkeley movies, but he was Spock, so he makes these. And honest to God, there's a couple of interesting notes for the franchise here that are directly out of that, which is Star Trek V gets the budget it gets because Star Trek IV is a success. And what a joy that shall be. Yeah. Uh, and after directing three and four Shatner's lawyers reminded Paramount that they've always had contract parity. So anything Leonard gets, William gets. Now, normally, that's supposed to be used for things like the budget for an assistant, a really nice dressing room. But Shatner decided that that meant that legally they had to let him direct Star Trek V making it the only bad thing Star Trek IV really did. <laughs> I won't call this a bad thing necessarily that Star Trek IV did, but I, it's clearly the biggest mistake involved in the production of Star Trek IV was not convincing Eddie Murphy to be in it. They were so close. Uh, you know, okay, I am of two minds on this. I want to see that movie. That's mm-hmm. a better movie. That That's a that's more of a crowd-pleasing movie. And, and do you de- would you deny that... Although this is the best earning of the Star Trek movies, it would have earned more had Eddie Murphy been in there. Oh, yes, it yeah, yeah, it would have, it would have, it could have rebuilt the franchise because Star Trek the motion picture confused the hell out of Paramount because they expected a giant success or a flop. And what they got was a very moderate success, a very moderate and consistent success. That they spent a lot of money on. Yeah, and so they did the math and they were like, you know, this franchise has some buzz. These have got to be $20 million pictures, though. 
They can't be 60, 80 million dollar pictures because they're only going to make 80 to 90 million. Now, it turns out there is a very consistent audience that'll bring us 80 to 90 million dollars. But no matter how much we do, we're never getting a hundred. That's not going to be a thing. And so until Star Trek V, it is a, it is a slow cutting of the budget more and more and more. This is definitely a smart filmmaker. Two smart filmmakers, really, because Nicholas Meyer's pretty heavily involved here. Mm-hmm. Trying to make the best Star Trek they can make on a budget. And Star Trek Three is still, like, reusing stuff. It's not really... It, it, they're, they're trying to keep it cheap because they've made these already. Star Trek Four is the first one where they're just kind of, like, from the ground up. Like, let's just make a cheap movie. If we make a cheap movie, it will turn a profit. I think it's probably my third favorite of the original movies. I'll put it down as... My least favorite of the good ones. So I think that goes with third favorite as well, right? Like it's. I think three's all right. Uh... This is better than three. I, I would rather watch this than three. Again, the only one I think is bad is five, and it's real bad. It's. Ooh, oh, mercy, mercy me. One other thing I read was that our old friend, producer Harv Bennett, was, was helping with screenwriting duty. So he did all the stuff that's set in space or in the future. Yeah, he basically wrote Star Trek Three, and then he had Nicholas Meyer write Time After Time. All the stuff in the past, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> also, the, the stories that, that Nimoy tells about this, it sounds like after the success of Three, where he was sort of really boxed in, like it sounded very marvelish, where they were like, all right, Spock, you can direct one. We're sending people to the set every day and watching every dollar. And it sounds like after Star Trek 3, Star Trek 4, he was just like, I don't know, just make a movie, man. I found a, a, a Nimoy quote about his goal in the making of the movie. And it's like, no dying, no fighting, no shooting, no photon torpedoes, no phaser blasts, no stereotypical bad guy. I was like, oh, okay, so, so just... None of the none of the space junk that we've been doing. None of the tricks, basically. No naval stuff, right? It is no longer a navy film, a submarine film in space, like you like to say. He he just erases that part of it. Interestingly, it is the most like a TOS episode mm-hmm. of any of the movies. It it and and I, I think I remember him talking about this. You can find episodes that are kinda like Wrath of Khan. You can find episodes that are kind of like the motion picture. You can't find any episodes that are anything like Star Trek 3. Star Trek 3 is a movie, and it's mm-hmm. only trying to be a movie. And so part of it was like, yeah, there were fun episodes in between the serious stuff. I'm going to make a fun one. The Eddie Murphy version of this movie is not Leonard Nimoy's movie. And this is Leonard Nimoy's movie in a way that even Star Trek 3 isn't. This, this is a Nimoy picture. It's fun. It's light. There's a lot of famous improvs in it, at least if you're the kind of nerd I am, where, like, I don't know, 10% of the dialogue is him just going, yeah, 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 do that! (laughs) (laughs) We start with the crew of the Enterprise being brought up on war crimes by the Klingons at the Space UN in absentia, which is a pretty reasonable way to throw out all the exposition and recaps that we need thus far. Yeah, it's honestly, it would be gross in TV. I'd consider it a sin. But in a film with this kind of baggage, mm-hmm. well done. Nope. <laughs> Not, we, we bring out our old pal Sarek 
Spock's daddy to, to argue in their favor and just tell us all the things we need to know about what's been going on with the crew. It's, it's, it's effective and efficient, which is, I think at the end of the day, what you can say about Leonard Nimoy's directing style. Effective, efficient, silly. Yeah, no, no. I mean, he's a theater guy, and it shows in moments like this, where you're just like, no, 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 we don't want people talking to each other on stage. It's fucking, that's boring. That's, <laughs> all right, so we're going to have to get all this out? All right. Uh, uh, space UN. Mm. Uh, <laughs> uh, where, where's Mark Leonard? Do we have Mark? Do we have Mark? <laughs> Back in space, pretty much everything is as we left it in three. McCoy still has an ascot. The the crew still has a stolen Klingon bird of prey. I really like the respect to continuity, the 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 nod to, yeah, you guys are wearing everything that you were wearing at the end of Star Trek three. Why? I, you haven't been back to Earth. Do you want to wear Vulcan clothes? I don't think you want to wear those robes. This is one of the few times we really get a good up close at Vulcan. Which is weird because they're just there for about 10 minutes. But everything from the silly fucking hats on down is just, oh, that's Vulcan now. Why? Uh, because Leonard didn't really know what to do for three days in the desert at the beginning of Star Trek Four. So, funny hats, desert planet. Once again, saying... Apparently, everywhere else in the universe has one climate. So the only things that are a little different about the crew, that we're, we're ditching the Vulcan formerly played by Kirstie Alley. She's getting left behind. In a cut scene, she is left behind to have Spock's child from the pond far that he had in Star Trek Three. They never follow up on that. Yeah, I, it, we didn't need it. No, we, we didn't. didn't. No, we did not at all. At, at all. At all. Spock himself is locked in his room giving himself space tests. This is one of my favorite Leonard Nimoy Spock scenes. And he's just playing it. He's playing it really subtly. Honestly, I think the dead man himself would agree. Nimoy's not at his best when he's directing himself. And it's obvious. But this scene just works. It's all in his face. It's all in... The high-pitched computer. Yeah, which is great. It, it keeps asking him questions on uh, varieties of topics. Correct. Adjust the sine wave of this magnetic envelope so that anti-neutrons can pass through it, Correct. but anti-gravitons cannot. Correct. What is the electronic configuration of gadolinium? Correct. How do you feel? How do you feel? How do you feel? I do not understand the question. How do you How do feel? You feel? And then, of course... It repeats like a speaking spell because, of course, the perfectly logical Vulcans would just want it to repeat. I would like to talk about emotion versus logic in Vulcans for just a second. Sure, sure. I feel like they're very sloppy with the definition of logic. Okay, I am bringing in other outside data. It is also the only consistent alien building. But let me let me set up my complaint and then and then lay it on me. Okay. If you want to set up that a creature is emotionless, fine. But it understands. It has to understand that there is a concept of feeling and that you can answer the question, how do you feel? Like that the the idea that that is a stumper is strange to me. Even if this is his arc, is at the end of the movie, he can say, fine. I feel fine. (laughs) 
Tell my mother I feel fine. Tell my wife I said hello. It's because it's a stupid question. It's because it's a colloquial question. It's because it's not actually providing any data. The idea is, I think, that the Vulcan computer is like, I, we gotta ask him something else that only he would know. All right, how do you feel? But here's the thing. If you're a completely logical, emotionless brain, what you do is you give data. I feel like it is exactly 72.6 degrees and I have no illnesses. What do you feel about the temperature? How do you feel is a nonsense phrase. How do you feel I feel fine is a nonsense phrase if you're a logical culture. I'll give it to him. Also, Vulcans have feelings and 20 additional years of... They have all the feelings that we have. They're actually significantly bigger. The attempt at logic as a social philosophy is penning them in. Right. It's prophylactic to keep everyone safe. He knows what an emotion is. He hey, I'll accept everything up front here because his fucking katra, his soul, was deposited in Dr. McCoy while his body was regrown by a Genesis device. <laughs> <laughs> Shuttled back to his home world. I'm, I'm fine with it. <laughs> the, the one scene they have with him and McCoy where McCoy tries to bring that up. Like, hey, yeah, so, so you're my, your soul was, was in my body for a bit. It's like, it's like even from a screenwriting perspective, they want to say, yeah, let's not dwell on that as having yeah. any lasting <laughs> ramifications for you and I. Let's just move on. Like, hey, so that was crazy. Shut up. Mm. Then two more questions then. Is it established that Spock can't lie? Is that a thing for from the original series because later he won't be able to lie and also later he won't understand metaphor he he takes everything super literally and to the best of my knowledge this wasn't a problem with spock previously it was but it was kind of paid lousy lip service so again this is an attempt to boil down just his vulcan part vulcans do not lie now, there's a handful of times in the series where someone hangs a lantern on it and they're like oh an exaggeration. Oh, a slightly different interpretation of the truth. Yes, it has been established, but poorly. It seems like, should you get sent back in time to a planet where aliens would be something that people would fear, and the concept of time travel would scare them, that perhaps the most logical thing to do would be to lie and say that you were not an alien who time-traveled. I'm just saying if you were a very logical species and that was what dominated your every thought. Brand new brain, soul vacation. Okay, Retrained right. in the Vulcan way. I, you know, I get what you're, you're not wrong. Oh, oh, by the way, I'm just gonna just say it up front. I'm gonna be very nitpicky with this movie because it's time travel pisses me off and I'm gonna take it out on everything else. It's, it's, I, I don't mean to do this. It's just, this is what happens to me as a person when your time travel is sloppy. This is some sloppy time travel. They seem to know it. They don't get too hung up on it. Also, again, I've recently seen Star Trek Picard season two, and that's the sloppiest time travel that's ever been done in the history of ever. That's, that's got so many problems, it's actively upsetting. Yeah, but wouldn't the past have been different then? Sure, maybe. So are we now in an alternate? Whatever, I don't know. Ha hey, how'd Elnor come back? He was a main character, right? Fine. 
Back on Earth! Uh-oh! A random space probe! The USS Saratoga flies up to see what's going on with this weird space cylinder that has a, a little sphere popping out of it. Geometry is, once again, the scariest thing that can exist in space. I think this is my favorite alien ship in all of Star Trek. I just, <laughs> I like it. It's... It's it's so basic and nonsense. It's great. Well, I remember 2001, there was the monolith. That was impressive, right? Okay, well, this one's a cylinder. Ooh, what a twist. Yeah, the eye was provided by ILM guys without being asked for it. That's the, the little dangly hovering spear. Yeah, because they were just like, yeah, you're going to want that for dynamic shooting purposes, even though... We asked you, and you were like, no, it'll be beautiful. It'll be like, yeah, it's not going to look like anything. I'm black against black. And, and you can kind of get away with it with the monolith, because the monolith just was. Yeah, and it just sits there. It's not doing anything. <laughs> but in this movie, we're going to need reaction shots from the spaceship. And so you need the dangly sphere. It just Otherwise, it has no front, no back, no up, no down. There's no anything. Anyway, this weird sphere hovering under the cylinder has ionized Earth's atmosphere, shut down all the power and the starships and space stations that are nearby, and is vaporizing the ocean. Not cool, weird probe. Production afterwards really wanted subtitles under all this. Really, really wanted subtitles. And that was another Nimoy fight. I can tell. Because there's going to be a whole scene that needs it at the very end of this movie. Again, with my pointless nitpicking, Earth really lets hostile alien vessels get super close way too often. Yeah, there's this, and then there's V'ger. We didn't learn any lessons from V'ger? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I guess if I think about it, there's very little, no, you know, the Borg get to Earth, kinda. But other than that, like, I think it's possible that the whale probe taught them some lessons about Starfleet security. Better of. <laughs> where it's like, you, we're, we're going to need some ships that are like a little further away from Earth so they can stop these sorts of things. Tur turns out one ship can come from space and just destroy our planet, can just destroy it and shut down everything that we have to, to protect against it. So maybe we should start dealing with this while they're further away. The the last subtitle of the movie, and it actually, it's sort of loosely in there as sound, was supposed to be I'm Sorry, which really makes me mad because it makes none of the rest of it make fucking sense. This is basically the same plot as Star Trek The Motion Picture, except the probe wants to talk to whales instead of machines. Yes. Okay. Talk to whales through the vacuum of space. Yeah, like you do. And from so far... From the known universe that yeah. nobody on Earth or any of the hundreds of Federation nations knows anything about them. <laughs> so the crew is flying back in their stolen Klingon Bird of Prey, which first, like the Klingon Bird of Prey's leather interior. Nice. It's snazzy looking in there. Isn't it great? It's the party van of spaceships. Yeah, they looked at what they had in Star Trek Three, which was shot the way it was shot because it was cheap. Super dark in there, right? It's like red light everywhere. Yep, that's the way it looks. Well, but for us, when we're there, yep, give me lots of smoke machines, light it red. <laughs> <laughs> Real industrial. Yeah, the, the party van of starships. 
Second, I want to note McCoy in commenting about the cloaking mechanism of Coberta Prey says, It's bad enough to be court-martialed and spend the rest of our lives mining borite, but to have to go home in this Klingon flea trap. We can learn a thing or two from this flea trap. It's got a cloaking device that costs us a lot. I just wish we could cloak the stench. Dr. McCoy is a space racist. Uh, yes, yes. We've established this a few times, and we'll establish it more in Star Trek VI. Dr. McCoy is a southern space racist. As they approach the probe, which is destroying the oceans, Uhura filters out the probe's message and realizes it sounds like whales, like humpback whales. But humpback whales are all dead. This movie is unconcerned with where the probe came from and why it would want to talk with whales so bad. Nope. <laughs> we, will, we will never find out this information. <laughs> that will never be resolved. We got a problem, because this thing is going to blow up the world if it can't talk to whales, but we've got no whales. So Spock suggests the most logical thing, which is time travel, which is also insane. And I need a moment to discuss the stupidity of this time travel. It's kind of the plot of Avengers Endgame, but go ahead. <laughs> Here's the thing with Avengers Endgame. You built a machine, and that machine, because of pim particles, creates time travel. I'll take it. I'll take it. What I won't take is this Superman the movie bullshit where you can do something in space, like re-rotate the world, and that causes time travel. Or you could go around the sun real fast, and that causes time travel. No, no, no. Those aren't things. All right, and what you are now describing at a very core level is the problem with time travel in all of Star Trek. Because every time we think, like so many other things... The slingshot around the sun is just going to quietly go away because it's a little too easy to time travel. Someone does that bullshit again. And so every time there is a story about time travel where they are trying to solve it and they have a spaceship, you just go, well, why aren't they slingshotting around the sun? Well, no, there's maybe reasons or no, we've established it is remarkably easy. <laughs> it is possible to create time travel anytime you want. You can do it in an aging bird of prey. Not even a good <laughs> ship. Yeah. <laughs> it's the exact problem that people were pointing out from The Last Jedi. Well, now you can just go into light speed and shoot your way through another ship, and, and that's just a thing that can happen in the Star Wars universe now. That's just part of stuff. The answer is no, we're just going to only care about this when we want it to happen. Otherwise, it's impossible. We'd actually just gone about 20 years without a slingshot effect. So I was feeling real comfortable that modern Star Trek, I'm talking TNG, DS9, all of that, had established that time travel was real. Because there's a couple of time travel episodes. Sure. Sure. But it's gotta happen weird. Mm -hmm. Like, it's gotta be a cue or an explosion. You find a weird being out in space who can make it happen. But Star Trek Picard brought us back at the slingshot, so apparently... Oh. <laughs> Picard. Oh, all the worst stuff. Hey, and wasn't there a whole thing in the motion picture about not using 
warp drive in the solar system like that was a real oh yeah that's a real no-no you can't do that (laughs) (laughs) and then there's this graphic that they have of them moving close to the sun right they're looking through the screen and then there are stars like flashing by while the sun is still maintaining a a relatively close distance i'm like why are those stars flashing by i don't understand how this could functionally work as a I, i don't know these are stupid complaints I know these are stupid complaints. If we had done this podcast three months ago, I just would have said to you, yeah, the slingshot's always dumb. I, you know, there's stuff that builds up over the years. But we're never going to do it again, so it doesn't matter. And then they did it again. (laughs) They don't even just do it. They say, yes, that's right, Kirk's Enterprise did this, which is now 150 years ago. A whole bunch of other shit has happened, and... They've time-traveled a bunch of times in other ways and been in time-travel situations, which could have been solved. <laughs> like, you didn't need to bring this back. You, I, Why does this work? No one knows. Why does it cause CGI faces to float around? I don't know, it's a cool shot. <laughs> why does it cause a CGI mannequin to float through the sky and then take a swim in a pool? I don't know. It's a cool shot. <laughs> I've got more stuff about what they do when they're back in the past. But the last one about the process, it feels weird for Kirk not to talk to Spock and McCoy about that time they traveled back in time once to murder a lady. Remember that time they did that? They've got three. Three. Only one that I've watched with you. They've got three times where someone would be, hey, remember when we time traveled all those times? One of them according to canon, was a mission. Like, they said they were going to do it in advance. (laughs) Like, what are you doing? We're going to go back in time and look at some stuff in the 20th century. Isn't that horrifying? Now, until Janeway, a running gag in Star Trek, whenever they're dealing with time travel, is that it is the only time we ever get references to the old show, just out of the blue, like, that sound fan servicey. And they're not. They are hanging that lantern, which is every time you talk to the time cops, they go, yeah, Kirk's a piece of shit. Whatever else is going on, yeah, no, you don't want to be fucking Kirk. What? Because he's a menace. Are you kidding me? If you're a person who wants to keep time safe, there's this guy about a hundred years ago who was just doing whatever he wanted. Just (laughs) Again, I think trying to correct this. In later canon. But of course, Picard, because it broke everything. God, it's a terrible show. Just was like, hey, let's do it like the one with the whales. If they had said, hey, let's do it like Spock and the one with the whales, it would have been exactly as bad. It would have been exact. Actually, that might I might have respected that slightly more. Long story short. We're all back in 1980s San Francisco, where it is cheap to film. They immediately run into three problems. One, they need some whales. Not that big a deal, because it's a pretty large planet. They could get some whales. Get some whales. (laughs) Two, they can't recrystallize their dilithium, but if they get some old fission radiation, something radioactive... Yeah, they gotta go get particles from a from a nuclear reactor. Gamma rays. Create the Hulk. Whatever. I, I got no problem with that. 
And third, they need to build a whale pen inside their starship. So they've got a they've got some side missions that need to be completed before they can go home. They have explained what is going to happen in this episode. <laughs> they park their invisible cloaked ship in the middle of a San Francisco park. Saving all the money. Saving all the money. <laughs> I do kind of like, I like the effect of the landing gear just kind of making an indent in the ground. Like, that's kind of fun. But that and the shot where, uh, what's her name? The whale scientist. The, let, let's call her from here on in the mom from Seventh Heaven. Yeah, the mom from Seventh Heaven. When she runs into the ship, both of those are in-camera effects that they did with real stuff. The impression is a shot reversed. Nimoy was saving money, Ben. Not kind of saving money. He was saving money. How are we going to do this effect? Uh, make sure the actress is good with mime, I guess. I don't know. Because there is some very, very subpar miming that will happen later on as, as, as the mom from Seventh Heaven approaches this invisible ship. And I remember that one because it's the only direct one-to-one -one thing I remember from the commentary track. It's William Shatner being really impressed with that shot and going, wow, Leonard, how'd you guys do that? And Nemo just going, she just did it. She's just miming. I mean, I think it worked, but I think it's pretty clear, Bill. And then just <laughs> <laughs> well, just as long as no one throws a frisbee in this park, the bird of prey is cloaked perfectly and will not be revealed to anyone. Not requiring a single additional optical shot until we get a piece of tank. It is time to engage fish out of water comedy so very literally. <laughs> I... I'm I'm a little proud of that one. I'm a little ashamed of it too. It's yes, it's it's both. It's it's, it's okay. It's it's like Fox News. It's impressive but evil. <laughs> <laughs> we begin with the crew of the Enterprise trying to get their bearings a little bit. One of the problems is that they don't have any money. That's kind of a biggie. All right, here is another Nicholas Myers. Fuck you. It's really funny because this is a great movie. But there's a lot of canon bullshit that happens only in this movie that will affect everything going forward. In the original series, there are references to people's pay grade and Federation credits. However, here in Star Trek IV, because it's a funny line, they say there is no money in the future. Yeah. And so now, there is no money in the future. Huh. And apparently, that's the one we have to respect, not anything else in canon. But, eh, there was money. Now there is no money. <laughs> they sell Kirk's old reading glasses. Weren't those a birthday present from Dr. McCoy? And they will be again, that's the beauty of it. How much? Well, they'd be worth more if the lenses were intact. I'll give you $100. Is that a lot? Is that a lot? It's kind of cute. <laughs> <laughs> also, theoretically, those glasses then come back in the future to be given to Kirk again. Where where did they come from? No, he just, he creates a time loop. I, I don't know. As far as dressing goes, I want to point out one thing. No, it doesn't matter how weird they look on the streets of San Francisco, except there is one of them that just looks like a middle-aged dad. His space 
outfit is just middle-aged dad outfit. Is it Chekhov? It Chekhov. Chekhov looks like a middle-aged dad. This last <laughs> review, I don't think I'd remembered. I've probably seen this movie, I don't know, at least a dozen times, if not more than that. Today was the day I noticed Chekhov's wearing leather pants. I Also, this is my favorite outfit that Sulu is in ever. Sulu mm. is dressed extraordinarily well in Star Trek 3 and 4. So much so, I'm sorry, I think we all should have known he was a gay man. The man can wear a half cape. <laughs> Not a lot of people could pull off a half cape. And you don't even <laughs> think about it. You don't even go nope. for a second. Hey, that guy's in a cape. You're just like, eh. George Takei can, can, can bring it. <laughs> Not even a full cape. It stops It stops a little before his waist because he doesn't. he doesn't need a full cape. Also, the crew learns about exact change from a bus. They they discover that pretty much everything they need directions to is written on a wall or, or on the side of a bus somewhere. It's pretty convenient. And they learn about profanity. A, 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 a double dumbass on you, my friend. Well, a double dumbass on you. <laughs> a double dumbass on us both. I unabashedly love the scene on the bus with the punk rocker. Oh, it's a delight. And when I was a kid, it was the most fun in the movie. Uh, yep. Every 80s movie needs a punk rocker, and this is this one's. <laughs> this scene is literally written because Nimoy had that exact experience and thought to himself in that moment, and this is, again, a guy who didn't particularly care for his thoughts about being Spock at that point, and thought at that exact moment, I really wish I was Spock right now, because I just... Neck pinch that fellow. Also, I just want to mention that this is one of the best fake punk songs that is just made for a movie. Oh, yeah. Um, I, when when I was a kid, I didn't know it was fake. Like, mm-hmm. that's how good it is. You're just like, that nope. sounds like... Like, I was probably, I don't know, in my mid-twenties when I was like, wait a minute, that's not a real song. I would know if that was a real song by now. <laughs> that, that, that's not a real band. That, that, okay. And again, comes back for Star Trek Picard. <laughs> the only other fake punk song from a movie that even comes close is the skinhead song from Romper Stomper, which, again, I was shocked to learn was not a real Oi song and was just made for that movie. Yeah. Uh, it loses points for its extreme racism, but still pretty well done. No, no, no. It's very authentic, right down to the racism. Spock and Kirk are on a mission to find whales, and they find them down at the Cetacean Institute, where they meet the mom from Seventh Heaven. And now here is where it is extraordinarily well-written, and that's almost annoying. They find exactly what they need in the first 20 minutes of the movie. They just show up like, two two whales in an enclosed space? We'll beam them up together? We consider ourselves lucky. Wait, wait, they're just getting rid of them anyway? So we're just not, it's not even a theft, really. We're fine. I have a couple comments and thoughts about whales. The first being... I think we should all have some thoughts about whales. The mom from Seventh Heaven mentions, of course, that they are not fish. They are mammals. And thus, they produce milk. Has anyone ever milked a whale? And what does whale milk taste like? Yes, and it's a little weird and fishy. I don't know why I've never seen whale milk at a Whole Foods, you know? Oh, because it's, it's illegal a... here. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. So it is, it's like a thing you can get in Japan, is that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have eaten several kinds of whale at this point. I feel bad about it. However, 
I realized I would never be in a situation where I could eat whale again. So I did it. I have no questions about the flesh of a whale. I just have, I have, I have zero questions. I can extrapolate that. But their milk, that one is the one that, that left me kind of like, huh. Yeah, they got whale milk. Yeah, it's fishy and kind of metallic. <laughs> the second thought is, I just remembered that the movie Blackfish is a thing and we are monsters and keeping two grown whales in a tiny tank is abominable. And yeah, actually, it's really weird. Uh, people initially protested this movie because of its mistreatment of whales. And within a year, it would be touring the planet and actually be one of the few American films shown in the Soviet Union for its advocacy of whales. And the reason people didn't like it is they just assumed that those were all real whales being treated exactly like those whales were treated. And I can say for us as a species, we have gotten a little better. We at least make up our histrionics now rather than just <laughs> assume that whatever's happening on the TV is not magic. It's just it's, it's yeah. happening. <laughs> and I say they are excellent whales. The whale effects are some of the best in the movie. They're excellent whales for the same reason that Jaws is excellent, which mm. is that there are a couple of animatronic whales involved, but they're just for that scene when Spock is swimming with them. And you don't see them very clearly in that. And other than that, it's just shots of whales. You see them in the ship. When they get uh -huh. brought onto the ship, you get you get some solid animatronic whale eye, and it, and it looks nice. I don't mm -hmm. know. Good news. I, I looked it up, and humpback whales aren't even endangered anymore. So I would like to, to throw something out at you. What if there is a time travel situation where Kirk and Spock have to come back to the year 2022 to kill all the humpback whales just to ensure that the Federation is founded? They've done this before. Oh, oh, I'm aware. I'm aware. Again, we had Edith Keeler, and Edith Keeler has told us only one thing. She had to die. <laughs> she had to die. The whales got to go, Borsier. They're going to come back by themselves and take out our whales. Oh, there's some more. Again, one of Star Trek's favorite plots is we have accidentally time-traveled. We have to clean up the timeline so everything's not destroyed. There's some problems in this movie, Ben. Now, this is the only one they couldn't have, have known would happen, is that we'd actually kind of... We'd get our shit together? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Blue whales, still still in a tough spot. Humpback whales, they're actually doing okay now. Except, I, I feel like I, I read this somewhere, that they hate us because of noise pollution in the ocean. We're just slowly driving whales insane. And seems very, very human of us. Yeah. I know we did that with the dolphins. That's why those weird bottlenose dolphins left, like, the area around Hong Kong. They were just like, mm. fuck this. And people <laughs> were like looking for like like pollution things or corollaries with whatever. Like, no, it's just loud and bad now. <laughs> Buck jumps in a tank with whales to psychically bond probably against the rules of the institution. And so Spock and Kirk spend the next 20 minutes or so trying to work around their need for whales with the mom from Seventh Heaven. This is cute in several different ways. First, Spock using the word the hell. The hell you were, Buster. Your friend was messing up my tanks and messing up my whales. They like you very much, but they are not the hell your whales. I, I suppose they've told you that, huh? The hell they did. Second, Kirk saying that Spock did a little too much LDS in the 60s. That's a great line. It's it's a three men and a little lady line, but it's... 
Also, it gives me a picture of Spock as a Mormon, which I kind of like. Yeah, I'm sure there's porn. The mom from Seventh Heaven is suspicious. Kirk reassures her, no ma'am, no dipshit. And yet, she still presumes dipshit. Reasons that make a lot of sense. But not so suspicious that she won't go out with Kirk for a pizza dinner. Here's another famous improv. This is written as she asks if they like Italian. Kirk says yes. Spock says no. Spock says no. And then the scene ends. But this isn't a traditional Star Trek movie, and Spock's in charge. You guys like Italian? No. 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 Yes. No. Yes. I love Italian. And so do you. Yes. This is two whales in a little spaceship. That is what it is. It's two whales in a little spaceship. (laughs) (laughs) Kirk flirts very badly with the mom from Seventh Heaven in a relationship that has so little chemistry that I think they write it in to the rest of the movie. No, she's just not interested. Uh, Shatner had developed kind of a reputation by that point as being weirdly lecherous. This is also just after the time that everybody hated him. And even when they hated him, they were just like, nah, he's just a piece of shit. But we hear all this terrible stuff about how he makes women get into these positions so that he could... No, no, no. But he is a piece of shit. And so a lot of people thought that this was wedged in by Shatner. It is not wedged in by Shatner. It is exactly what you described. They were like, maybe there'll be a little romantic underpinning going on. And once they started shooting, they were like... Nah. Nope. Nah. (laughs) Mom from Seventh Heaven's not into this. So Kirk is terrible at subterfuge regarding the fact that he is a spaceman who has time traveled. Because it wouldn't be a screwball comedy otherwise. Who are you? Who do you think I am? Don't tell me. You're from outer space. No, I'm from Iowa. I only work in outer space. Oh, well, I was close. You 100% can't tell people that you're from the future because that would screw up the future, which is the plot of three of the future movies and at least a half dozen episodes. (laughs) It takes him two sips of light beer to get to the point where he is telling her that he is from the 23rd century. Now, he is not a drinker. He's been drinking synthahol his whole life. Mm. So (laughs) that might be a factor. He was just like, oh, yeah, I have a beer that goes with this. Oh. Also, he is actually lying to her in this moment. I, he doesn't know that the whales are going to be safe in the future. He, no. For all he knows, that alien cylinder is looking for delicious whales <laughs> that it wants to dine upon. And it will destroy the earth if it can't get its, its tasty, tasty whales. He doesn't know. He doesn't speak cylinder. You're not wrong. <laughs> but we have at least established they're safer than on earth. Because there they would also be murdered because we're disgusting savages. Well, she drops him back off at a park where he disappears and we'll deal with this later. It's now time for our second quest, which is Scotty and McCoy playing good cop, bad Scott at the plastics plant. This is my favorite scene in the movie. (laughs) Just Scotty overacting that he's angry. (laughs) I've come millions of miles, thousands, thousands of miles. (laughs) The keyboard. How quaint. Although Kirk's violation of time travel rules is is bad form, what, what Scotty and McCoy do is utterly unacceptable to any time travel scenario. Yeah, that's a plot point right there. <laughs> they walk into the plastics plant and they tell the, the guy in charge of the plastics plant how to make transparent aluminum for them hundreds of years early, possibly. I don't know. I, I, 
at least a couple hundred years. But it's cute because Scotty doesn't know how to use a computer until suddenly he does. Also, to anyone who is a computer nerd from that era, that is a Mac classic, which is hilarious, but it is not running Mac OS, which is even weirder. And it's really simple. It's because the digital effects people were like, we can't do that. You just get a screen that shows you the transparent aluminum structure. You, you don't you don't try to manufacture that on an actual computer. That would be a terrible idea. Transparent aluminum now exists, which is terrifying for some reason. <laughs> when you told me that a little earlier today, I, I went, I watched the video about transparent aluminum. It, it seems pretty much like what they're describing. It's just, it's the only thing I can think of of that kind from a, a science fiction scenario where just like, it's like if we just made lightsabers. Yeah, yeah, no, it's exactly <laughs> like, because frankly, there's too famous a line to believe that anybody working on transparent aluminum ever didn't go, you know. The only thing that makes me feel a little bit better is that it's not just aluminum. It is like aluminum and nitrogen. And it- yeah, it's aluminum oxide. It is transparent aluminum, so fuck you. <laughs> Fuck you, science. Screw the time-space continuum. We're just throwing technology in. You've specifically given this new technology, not to someone, because sort of that can Mm. happen, but to someone who works in materials fabrication, who has a whole factory. You're in it right now. (laughs) Butterfly effect, schmutterfly effect, my friend. They have a whale tank now, and that's what's important. Yeah, this isn't, I left a gun in the 12th century, and no one will know what it is. This is, here is how you create transparent aluminum. Guy with a factory, go ahead and start doing that. Right now. I bet the things you make with it won't change the future in any way. Couldn't possibly. But again, there's a much bigger quirk on the way. Last quest. Sulu, Chekhov, and Uhura just decide to start poking around asking about nuclear subs. This includes a lot of of Chekhov asking about the nuclear vessels, which is important and good. It's where they keep the nuclear vessels. Nuclear vessels. Excuse us. Oh, excuse me. Uh, We are looking for nuclear vessels. Hello. We are looking for the nuclear vessels in Alameda. Could you tell me where? Okay. Couple of things. One, Nimoy kept nailing home that he had to say nuclear vessels as often as possible. It is correct and good. Koenig had Mm -hmm. problems with this. He was like, that's silly. I mean, I know we're doing the accent and whatever. He's like, no, it's going to (laughs) work and it'll be great. He was correct. It's a three men and a baby line, but it works. (laughs) The second point is, he keeps saying, do you know how to get to the naval vessels in Alameda? The the naval vessel in Alameda, the nuclear vessels in Alameda. One of the people he talks to says, oh, I don't really know. I think they're in Alameda. And he goes, Alameda, that's what I said. And she walks (laughs) away. All right. That is a non-union extra working on her very first day who doesn't know she's not allowed to talk. Ah, she just upgraded herself. (laughs) (laughs) And Nimoy was just like, you know what? That's funny enough that I'm going to go with it. You don't get to work in Hollywood again, but... (laughs) (laughs) But yes, we'll keep that one. When they get there to the nuclear vessels in Alameda, Sulu starts poking around helicopters and then kind of just disappears for a bit. It's like the movie forgets about him for a little while. This is an actual cut scene. Takei hurt his back. Oh. Push, like he is injured the entire time this thing is shooting. Oh. And the scene is written as he's, you know, talking to the helicopter pilot about Huey's 
he walks away, and Sulu just leaps into the helicopter and steals it right there. And they actually tried to shoot it a couple of times, and it was not happening. What's interesting is that this allows for a secondary reading of that scene in which, because, say, it's a a little little flirty, that interaction. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. I think we can build a scenario in which Sulu seduces the helicopter pilot for the helicopter. I believe that (laughs) Sulu seduced the helicopter pilot. Yes, that is is my canon explanation. It makes a lot... He got a fucking helicopter. How do you do that? (laughs) And, And that happens in the afternoon. You don't see him using the helicopter until the night. So him and the helicopter pilot, they had some time to kill beforehand. That's all I'm saying. Hey, hey, hey. You're, you're a space pilot. You're in 20th century San Francisco for the day. What you gonna do? You go down to the naval yard and you find yourself a Navy boy. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of the Navy finding things, they catch Chekhov draining gamma rays or something from the submarine. They get all the gamma rays. They get all the stuff because Uhura gets out, but they can't quite lock onto him. Which makes no sense, because that's where they beamed him into. But that's neither here nor there. You have a lot of thoughts about the transporter, as I have a lot of thoughts about time travel. I think that this is our particular bugaboos. The transporter is stupid and works inconsistently. (laughs) I've got an important transporter note, but we're going to save that one. Uh, I I believe we have the same note, and I'm going to tell you... The big preview from a giant Star Trek nerd is there's no explanation for it. And we don't fix it for another 30 years when there's still no explanation for it. People are just more comfortable with it. They're just like, eh. <laughs> Chekhov is trapped by the Navy. They seem reluctant to believe he's from space. They drop an R-bomb in description of him, which is, you know, the 80s. Yeah, it's 86. They didn't use the F word, so it's restraint. Admittedly, being from space is a weird cover story for Russian espionage. Chekhov's chunky phaser doesn't work. Is it? Is it? It feels really chunky. It's a Klingon phaser. Okay, that's why. Oh. Yeah, they don't have any of their own equipment, which is actually a, a clever cannon nod, essentially. I like that detail then. Okay. Like, the same with the communicators. All their gear is Klingon. They just pulled it off the ship. His clunky Klingon phaser doesn't work. So he throws it at the government stooge and makes a run for it. Poor time continuum, Borsier. What are we doing to this thing? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We are going to end with Chekhov having no communicator, no phaser, and no weird 23rd century future clothes, which I at least have to assume are made of transparent aluminum or some shit. Uh, Which are all, again... They were just leather. Not left with a guy, not left with a hobo, not accidentally left in a village, but handed directly to an officer of the American government. (laughs) We will not go back and check on them. We will not even consider retrieving them. There is an episode of Enterprise called The Communicator. It is a whole episode about one guy accidentally leaving a communicator on a planet and it just destroying their entire yeah exactly like that's an episode <laughs> the only thing i'm not worried about at all are Chekhov's clothes because they just look like they they came from like a back rack of a men's warehouse like it's yeah yeah, yeah it is 1986 in the mission district so yeah mm-hmm. there's a couple of there's a couple of shops you could pick that up yeah you're, this poor space time continuum it's a, it's so busted <laughs> it's so busted <laughs> 
You've revealed transparent aluminum. <laughs> Marty McFly took better care of the space-time continuum. Oh, well, I'd this... be the first one to, to know when I got back if the timeline had changed. Why do they always say... No, you wouldn't. No, <laughs> nobody knows. This all ends with Chekhov taking a tumble and ending up in the hospital. Oh, no. We gotta save Chekhov. This involves, now, the mom from Seventh Heaven, who showed up to work to find the whales were gone. She slapped her boss and drove off into the park where she ran into a cloaked starship and did some mime work, as we said. Yeah, and did some great object work, really. She's got this resistant fallback that happens when she is. It's it's actually good. She's doing some good object work. When she goes to touch it, her hands are a little uneven. Yeah, they could have cut three seconds earlier. You're not wrong. But, you know, the, 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 the initial impact is very impressive. So god damn it, we gotta save Chekhov. Spock suggests saving Chekhov, but to show that he's becoming more human, I guess. May I suggest that Dr. McCoy is correct? We must help Chekhov. Is that the logical thing to do, Spock? No, but it is the human thing to do. Right. I. Where's this newfound respect for humanity come from? I don't there has been no impetus for it. It's going to get even weirder in Star Trek V, where Spock is just Star Trek II Spock. You just don't worry at all. It's just, now he's fine. There's a really good logical argument for saving Chekhov, which is, we came from the future, we can't just leave a guy here because the poor time-space continuum. But then you'd have to admit all the other things we've done to the poor time-space continuum, maybe involving the 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 mom from seventh heaven i i don't know that that... who will by the way essentially disappear and die mysteriously at the end of this movie (laughs) the same day as her beloved whales were retrieved against her will there is an investigation going on ben The SFPD in 1986 is walking around going, someone murdered this bitch. Like, someone killed that lady. (laughs) Her her boss, who had a public conflict with her in in front of their workplace, goes to jail. That man has got to go to jail for her disappearance, right? Yeah, I mean, he at least gets arrested. His life is ruined. His life is ruined. That guy is not running any cetacean institute anywhere. The hospital scene is, to my mind exactly what Leonard Nimoy likes to film. That's what he's all about. It is a delight right down to the soundtrack, which is totally different than anything else in the movie. It's just a screwball comedy for four or five minutes. McCoy solves a lady's kidney problems with a pill. Time continuum. (laughs) 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 But, But honestly, I love that one. And without all the other problems... I would just be like, that's delightful. Yes. <laughs> no, I mean, the best part of this is is McCoy walking around just listening to people talk about 20th century medicine and just being disgusted by it. Perfect DeForest Kelly fodder is what this is. In a way that they will try to do later in more overt ways, like in Six, this is a pure McCoy moment written for DeForest Kelly because someone realized he didn't have a whole lot to do in Star Trek Four. Everybody gets their little job. And now McCoy has a little job he needs to do in the hospital. It it, it, it fits perfectly. Also, again, the space-time continuum, because they will see three doctors come in, seize uh, the operating room, theoretically repair the man's brain, seal it yeah. shut with a ray gun, lock them up with a ray gun! <laughs> let's, let's talk about this scene for a second, because... 
First, before we even get to what the doctors see, there are some cops out in front of this hospital room where where Chekhov is on death's door and unconscious in some kind of coma. They, to the best of my understanding, have been told by the government that this is a dangerous Russian operative that they should probably keep from escaping. And so, when three people dressed as doctors walk into the room without showing any kind of identification, that's fine with the cops. The cops are just like, yeah, come on in. Why not? Oh, you you seem to be grabbing the doctors who are already in there and forcing them into a room while you mess with the body of this man. They're right outside. They're right outside. (laughs) They're paying zero attention. The doctors watch the crew heal Chekhov with future tech, and then a slapstick chase occurs throughout the hospital with Chekhov on a gurney. The terrible cops chase them into an elevator, but they've already beamed out. Minor problem has been minorly solved because there are no major issues in this movie. Tiny little impediments that we take care of almost instantly. They've just altered future medicine forever. But we've still got one last screw you to the space-time continuum. The mom from Seventh Heaven apparently has no loved ones of any kind and has just decided she wants to come to the future. Kind of pathetic. Just just want to say that right out front. Yeah. Also, again... I think uh, it's Operation Earth. They think they're going to have to take a guy with them. And then they realize that his great-grandson will be important to the space program. So we've got to reintegrate him into the timeline. That's a thing these characters did. That's not even the franchise. (laughs) These characters did that. And no one goes, hey, we should probably check to see if she ever, you know, invented transparent (laughs) aluminum or some shit. Because if she invented transparent aluminum, honestly, I think we can close this loop. I hate sloppy time travel, Borsi. I hate it so much. Which (laughs) which is which is a problem because this movie is so enjoyable otherwise, except for Every other scene, they're committing a time travel sin. And so I, I can't I can't fully commit to it the way I, I, I want to. And now let's remember, unlike other movies that have a loose idea of the time travel that is going on and the possibilities of the butterfly effect, mm-hmm. all of these Starfleet officers all are driven by the Temporal Prime Directive. A formal law with a formal Bureau of Enforcement (laughs) that they've had to work with several times in the past. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, this isn't, oh, time travel's wacky. This isn't Marty McFly. This is, uh, well, we're time traveling. All right, well. This isn't Vietnam. There are rules. Actually, no, this is important. They don't even choose not to. You hear nothing about any time travel ripple effects whatsoever in this whole movie. They laugh about how they've changed the, the time-space continuum. Let's also keep in mind episode first contact that, that we have watched. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where you have to be very, very careful with these pre-space societies, which they are not being. <laughs> Again, that is the explanation. So let's move on from time travel sins to teleporter sins because the mom from Seventh Heaven, when it seems like she's about to be left behind, 
jumps into Kirk's arms while he's getting beamed up and is beamed up simultaneously, which somehow does not turn them into a bizarre brundle fly. Not, not how transporters work. Not how transporters work. Not how transporters have worked before or since. Maybe, maybe, oh, it's a Klingon transporter. But still, if you're gonna suspend disbelief and believe transporters work... They have got to be pretty fucking precise. There is a broken transporter in Star Trek 1. What we got back didn't live long. Thank God. Also, both times she gets transported, she screams and is moving the whole time. The first time, it's because they didn't tell her it was going to happen. The first time they transport her, they do it by surprise, which is quite rude. And she actually plays it well. I'm actually, I'm impressed with that actress. Because that first 10 seconds there, she's just like, everything about this is the worst. Okay, now I can be impressed with spaceships. But for a second, it's just, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's violating, man. <laughs> Let, let's just give her that she broke in through the teleporter into onto the ship. They can just teleport her back out. Like, it's not, it's not like a problem that they couldn't just solve. If it, you know, but then she's seen the ship. I get it. She saw the ship a long time ago. Uh, you know what? You're right. Yeah, no, they could just make her leave. But no, eh. Yeah, the next stop's 23rd century. They don't have time. They can't transport her anywhere. She's just got to come to the future now. There's not like there's a sense of urgency or a, a ticking clock. Because again, all the horrible things that could happen to the Earth are in the future. So they can have as much time as they need to, to set things right. They're just not setting anything right. For some reason, they've decided they only have like 24 hours. You know what happens if they don't find these two whales? Mm-hmm. Let's just go find two other whales. They got a starship. It moves really fast and far. You know why I know? Because the two whales that they were going to find leave. They leave and they get to, I don't know, Canada, the coast of Canada or Norway or somewhere. Yeah, I think it's Alaska or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They get super far, like eerily far. Like, I'm scared of these whales now. Whales are fast. (laughs) Which... Leads to a couple fun things, like some more invisible ship hijinks as it takes off. We get some shots that are straight out of Flight of the Navigator as it- I think they're actually from Flight of the Navigator. I think they bought stock footage. It it wouldn't surprise me, because that was the first thing I thought. And it came out that year as well, so maybe. Also, Flight of the Navigator was notoriously budget-fucked. This film- has no overarching conflict. The crew of the Enterprise on their stolen bird of prey have to interpose themselves in front of some whalers. I don't even care about the, the stupid space-time continuum anymore. I don't, I, I don't even care. This is fun. I don't, I don't know. They just show themselves in front of the, the whalers and... It works! They're like, ah, crap, terror spaceship. <laughs> also, it's a way more intimidating ship than if it was the Enterprise. I mean, they're, they're just lucky. They got this weird fucking alien-looking thing. And so they beam whales aboard. Admiral, there be whales here. There be whales here. here. <laughs> the beasties seem happy to see you, Doctor. <laughs> God, you know, the fact that James Dewan was not a Scotsman is, in retrospect, one of the most offensive things that happened over the course of, like, four decades. I am one of the smartest men in the world in a future tech land. Oh, beasties, beasties. So it's time for one more trip around the sun. This is still dumb, but... This time it works perfectly for absolutely no reason, and there's no CGI faces this time. I don't know. It needs to work, and it does. Apparently, Spock's guess got better. 
And now it doesn't do the face ripping thing. It's just, you just go. <laughs> no, I'm not going to complain about it because there's no point to it. Again, it's, it's and if this of... doesn't work out, they can just do it again because you can just slingshot around the sun anytime you like. Uh, apparently. No problems with that. They crash land back in the future under the Golden Gate Bridge and drop off their precious Whaley cargo. But there's flooding in the hull, so Kirk has to swim to open the bay doors. I imagine that Shatner demanded that in a rewrite. Yeah, that's got it. That's a Shatner. That's a sh- like, I want to win. Yeah, but there's not really an enemy in this one. I want to win. <laughs> I want to win against the water, against the ocean. I could defeat an ocean. And so, freed out into the sea, the whales and the probe begin to have a nice chat about something. But since there are no subtitles, them going back and forth between those shots is absurd. Maybe it's supposed to be tense, like nobody knows what they're saying. But the 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 choice to not have the subtitles is the only, like, real directorial mistake that they're making here. I think it works. I think it works. It was like 10 seconds of it, fine, but it, it's a good... Like 30 seconds back and forth. They're they're gilding the lily. They've spent all that time and money getting it, you know. But, you know, you got your two biggest effect shots talking to each other. Then the probe leaves. Great. We've been saved by whales like schmucks are saved by whales. By the way, I don't see why these whales would want to save us in any way. Well, we've been given literally no indication of their level of intelligence or conceptual understanding of what's going on, Mm -hmm. so I can't say. All I can imagine is that they've been traumatized by being forced onto a spaceship and then thrown around the sun, whatever that does. They probably had to see some CGI images of themselves that they they hated. I can imagine those whales swimming off and then the probe's like, hey, what do you think about humanity? And the whales go, oh, these guys. Oh, you don't even know. They killed my dad. They put me in a pen for years. And then, and then, this thing on the starship. Oh, Hey, I, we haven't heard from you guys in a long time. We've been talking. We haven't heard anybody. We've been talking. We've been talking the whole time. No, I can't find any. No, no, we'll call up some of our friends. <laughs> Nothing, huh? <laughs> Why isn't there anyone? I should be able to hear someone. Oh, my God. Hey, probe thing, what's the date? Fuck me. All right. They got time travel, and they got sloppy time travel at that. We are boned. <laughs> Poor whales. Although, you know what? There is at least one piece of good news. They have a scientist who only has studied whales and is the only one probably in the universe who knows anything about whales. So maybe she can help them get enough genetic diversity to, to keep from dying out. I don't know. Oh, no, 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 no. She's already off on a spaceship. <laughs> They say it at the end. Hey, we just reintroduced whales. It saved us because apparently they're intelligent enough to communicate with space beings that can destroy the universe. Do you know anything about whales? I do. All right. Do you want to study them? No. No, not particularly. (laughs) I kind of, um, I'm in the future. That's past me. That's, that's a dead me. Also, for their crimes of all the many court martials in Star Trek are fun and wild and whatever, I don't understand why they're still bothering. Because either they stole the flagship of the Federation, ran it off to a planet they weren't allowed to go to, and then blew it up, but also saved the universe. So they say. So they say. There is an opposing story that Klingons have told. 
or they didn't. And if they didn't, we don't need to have a whole big thing. So the idea that they would court-martial him and demote him to captain so that he can fly around in the Enterprise A. It just seems implausible. I'm sorry. It's just a... (laughs) First off, in the timeline of these movies that you've made me watch, Star Trek III was not the first time he stole the Enterprise. He stole the Enterprise at the end of the motion picture. He just took it. I think he steals it in Wrath of Khan, too. He's always stealing the Enterprise. So you got a couple different options here. Your first option is to say, hey, you've stolen the Enterprise for the last time. You're going to jail, even though you just saved all of Earth with your whales. Or uh, let's just make sure he has an Enterprise so he's just not stealing it anymore. It won't be a problem anymore. (laughs) Give him a ship. He'll go do ship stuff. It tends to work out for us in the long run, honestly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The the idea that his punishment is exactly what he wants and that, you know, everybody wants for him. Like, that's, that's, that's just cutesy screenwriting stuff. Yeah, and it'll work better in six. The mom from Seventh Heaven ditches Kirk like a bad habit. That's great. Uh, (laughs) Ditches the whales equally unceremoniously. And she's out. Spock tells his daddy that he wants to sleep over with his friends. His daddy agrees. Is that a weird way to phrase what happened? I don't know. They are men of good character. (laughs) He tells his mom that he feels fine, which is, I guess, emotional growth. Yeah, it's the humanness, you know. Sure. And then we end the movie. One last shot of the new Starship Enterprise A, as if to round off the past four movies by starting right where the original series left off, with this cast in the ship. Helm ready, Captain. All right, Mr. Sulu. Let's see what she's got. It's a good movie. It's a fun movie. It's just, it commits too many crimes for me. You know? You know, and for time travel, yeah, it's a fucking mess. It's a fucking mess. And in a different series, I'd I'd actually be yelling at you and saying, Mm -hmm. ah, they fixed it. But, like, they do so much with it elsewhere. (laughs) No, you can't ask me to ignore it. It's it's one of the reasons that Back to the Future can get away with this shit, and this can't, is because they, they establish important, unbreakable rules for time travel. And then they just say, ah, but we don't care about them this time. That is my personal pet peeve, and it is an absurd one. No, and you know, I, I, it's, it's not even absurd. It really is. It's just like, okay, no, you've given me time travel. You've given me this as a concept within your universe that I'm supposed to accept. It's nonsense because it's time travel. You've given me some rules. Stick to them. This movie is so fast and loose with time travel. The only real way to reconcile it is to say that all that stuff happened and that they come back to an alternate future which eventually gives us the next generation. I mean, I guess you can get there because the next generation is going to come out in like six months or something like that. Maybe. I don't know. But it's, yeah, it's, it is unforgivable. <laughs> but you, you love this film. Oh, yeah. It's a blast. It's just, it's fun, though. It's fun. It's the most fun of these movies. I'll give you that. This film is enjoying itself a great deal. And none of the others, except for maybe Montalban on his own in, in Khan. Even that, even two is a little self-serious. Honestly, my favorite Star Trek movie is Star Trek Six. I think mine too. 
you know, two gets credit for just being where they invented all this shit, but I like four a lot. I hadn't watched four in a little while, and I forgot how how much of a comfort watch it is. The gang, they're back in San Francisco. It's the 80s. I don't know. Also, production design on this movie, you know, like, the, the extras all look like extras pretending to be in the 80s in modern day America. And I think that just happens because it's San Francisco. Like, everybody's just like, nope. We, we've all got costume. But yes, <laughs> Star Trek Four is over. It's the one with the whales. We like the one with the whales. <laughs> it might be Leonard Nimoy's best movie. Well, I hope you are braced for some utter nonsense next time. I barely remember this movie at this point, so I'm going to have to watch it again. I do remember it being fucking bonkers. I do remember going like, I can't even lock on to what's happening. Hellraiser Bloodline is such... An amazing mess. Uh, it's it's barely a movie, and yet it is three movies. So, Borsier, got any plugs? I loved season two of Hacks. Mmm. I have I have yet to is? watch any Hacks. I've just I I've just completely missed it so far. But oh, season one is amazing. But season two mm. doubled down. It was great. Like I was awesome. a little worried that they would be out of. It felt a little weird at the end of season one. I was a little worried that they'd be out of out of gas when they came back. And no, it was just, just built on what they'd done before. They haven't reinvented the wheel or anything, but if you like season one, you'll like season two. If you mm-hmm. like things that are good, you'll probably like hacks. Watched a lot of TV and, and a lot of it's been, I've been kind of nonplussed with, but the TV show that I watched recently that I loved was We Own the City. We Own the City is fantastic. And it was great overall. Yeah, it was a great show. If you've been looking for grumpy Josh Charles, and I think we all have, um, then this is the this is the show for you. If you wanted to watch The Wire, mm. but you felt like watching anything fictional would make you cheap and ridiculous, a- and would inherently cheapen any of the concepts about discrimination and policing, but you're also offended by the idea of documentaries for some reason, right? You need a middle yeah, ground. Yeah, yeah. yeah you need. <laughs> That is fictionalized truth. There it is. Yeah, you got your wire finally. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) So, from two of the bungled to all our botched friends out there, we love you. We do. Speaking of seeing things I never should see. (laughs) I like that as far as human beings go, that man has stood up over the last 30 years. He's looking pretty good. Okay. He kind of had had a little bit of a faux hawk back then too, but but it was closer to just straight up mohawk in the past. Well, okay, yeah, but here he is an old man punk, deeply mm-hmm. committed to this thing that is clearly specious and irrelevant. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> oi, oi, oi! So now it's got to be bigger with the beard and the whole thing. <laughs>